Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I'm Andrew Millen, and you're listening to the Celtic Soul Podcast. You're all very welcome to episode 22. My guest on the show will be John Fallon, who recently celebrated his 80th birthday, John, the original Celtic Holy Goalie, long before Atterborough's time. I would like to thank all the businesses and supporters clubs who have sponsored the podcast so far. If you would like to become a sponsor, please email us at info at celticfanzine.com. You can also contact us through the website or message us on social media. Over the last few weeks, we've had a lockdown in Aberdeen, Bollingolligate, postponements, meat plant closures, mid-Leinster in lockdown, and further restrictions with the backdrop of Trump's tweets, the opposition leader in Russia getting poisoned, explosions in Lebanon, a rigged election in Belarus, the list goes on and on. Has the world gone mad or has it always been like this? All I want to do is get back to football and get a few points with the boys and that's before even thinking about my plan for world peace. So it was nice to read some positive news yesterday. Nicola Sturgeon has indicated that a limited number of football fans could return to stadiums under strict physical distancing rules. As Celtic fans, this is music to our ears, as we have not seen the inside of Celtic Park since we brushed St Mirren aside back in March. No doubt about it, if limited fans are allowed back in Celtic Park, the debates will kick off about who should or should not be allowed back in first. Get ready for a social media meltdown. The Celtic and Rangers game is going to happen in October, and every fan wants to be in for that one. We wait in hope. My guest on the podcast today is John Fallon. John played for Celtic during our most successful period in our unbroken history. A member of the famous Lisbon Lions squad, he played at the highest level for over a decade with his boyhood team and left with a bag full of medals and memories and he played his part in the first nine in a row. John, you're very welcome to the Celtic Soul podcast. I'd like to wish you a happy birthday. I'm sure you enjoyed the celebrations surrounded by our family and friends. Unfortunately, I couldn't be there because of the COVID travel restrictions. 
Are you looking forward to getting back to see Celtic after Nicola Sturges announced that limited capacity could be allowed back in mid-September? I am indeed. And thanks for the birthday wishes, Andrew. Yeah, I enjoyed it with my family and missed watching the Thames. Oh, been terrible. I have a wee friend, Tommy Stevenson. He can't come through to Glasgow, but he's got to start go to Celtic Park. He thinks it's the the, four, uh, the 15th station of the cross. He's got to, he's got to go there. <laughs> it's just cracking up. So this today's news will be good uh, that we can get in in September. So I hope uh, I'm allocated a little seat so that I can get back there and watch my hoops and get the anxieties left out me. You know, I can. I don't know if we'll be allowed to shout, will I? I'm sure you will if you're social distance from Charlie McGinley and Tommy Stevenson and and all the boys. Yeah, John, I'm I'm sure you are all missing your little get together at the pool's office before every game. Well, I am, I've now changed areas now. I'm round at the Lisbon Line entrance, so it's easier. They gave me a new car parking facility round there, so I only walk about fifty yards into the entrance up in the elevator, and that's me up towards my seat. So I miss the boys, but we still have our little meetings. We have st- still have our meals, maybe once a week, sometimes uh, twice. It all depends, but we always make sure we meet and talk about the game. It wouldn't be the same if we didn't talk about the game, would it? Is that the famous uh, breakfast club? Yeah, we just... Well, the breakfast club, it's a uh, while we had it. See, that's uh, fixed as well with this COVID. You know, we're only allowed X amount in. So that's got to be sorted out. Hopefully we can get it uh, fixed out. We get back to Carrigan's and enjoy ourselves. John, can you just, just tell the listeners um, what the uh, breakfast club is? It's the boys that stood outside uh, old pool's office. And every Monday, maybe once a month, we go up to Carrigan's and Blantyre. And we have a breakfast club. It's coffees, rolls and sausages, rolling eggs, whatever we want can have a breakfast, and we discuss everything and anything about Celtic, and we all have our views, and it's just a great discussion, sitting down talking about the previous week or month, whatever it is. We just sit down and have a right good chat for about three hours, two hours, three hours. <laughs> I've always wanted to attend one of these, John, and the next time I do attend, I'll bring the tape recorder and i get all your thoughts down, and maybe we could do a podcast with the Breakfast Club. Oh, that'd be great. Great. You'd be well, more than welcome. Just for the benefit of the listeners, if you hear a dog barking, it will be Delia, John's faithful dog, who I'm informed by one of your sons that when a Rangers fan walks by the house, he tends to bark at them. I don't know where they got that from. I don't know who taught them how to do that. You see a few of them coming up and down from the station, and they, if they look in the door, they're in trouble. The dog just tells them where to go. And it's so in language. It says me be calling out. Well, thank God no referees are walking, boy, because it would be you that would be barking at them. Oh, no, the dog would be out the window. The <laughs> be. Oh, definitely. Oh, oh. I'm teaching her how to behave. Johnny, you were born into a Celtic family. For 18 years, you followed them, you played for them. Yeah. Now, at the moment, we've got two goalkeepers uh, vying for a place. First impressions of the new boy, first. Vasilis Bargas. Well, the first impression was uh, down at Kilmarnock. Who wants to play in these crap pitches? They, they should be kicked out of football. We've lost the centre-half through these football stadium, uh, parks. 
And I was pleased as punch when I seen him coming out and catching a cross ball. Oh, I've never seen a goalkeeper doing it for Scott Bain done it last season when he was playing. You know, they, they practice taking crosses before the game, hitting balls into the middle for the goalkeeper to come and take a cross ball. But when the cross balls come in during the game, where's the goalkeeper standing in his line? He's not allowed to come out. Six foot seven, and when they jump, they're nothing. They're six foot. They don't They don't come out off their goals. Big Jock would be going off. He's not. I was just saying to Jim Craig at the weekend, could you imagine if I would come off my line eight, ten yards for a cross ball that's hanging there? You would be shouting at me. Billy would be shouting at me. Tam would be shouting at me. And Big Jock would be screaming, not coming for a cross ball. That's my only complaint I've got about our modern keepers. They will not come out for a, a cross ball six yards or anything. I don't know why they're not allowed to come out. Why do you have big six, six foot seven men? You know, Ronnie was five foot ten. I was six foot. We could come off one line. You know, I was told to come ten yards at times. And this is only the fault I've got against goalkeepers now. They will not come out for cross balls. And John, you've you've you played there. You mentioned Ronnie. You played with some other keepers. You you, you fought with them for the for the starting jersey. What advice would you give Scott Bain? You know, he's going to have to wait for his chance. And he, he had to play earlier in the season knowing that he was not going to be the first choice. I actually feel sorry for the boy because I think he's a good goalkeeper. Honest to God, I think he's a good goalkeeper. Like any other goalkeeper, tell me, if you don't make a mistake, you're not a goalkeeper. If you don't make a mistake, you'll learn. But I, I just actually feel sorry for the boy because I thought he was doing well. The ball to your feet, that's not a goalkeeper. You'd be better playing without uh, hands. You know the game, they've changed the rules and you've got to pass the ball back. Your goalkeeper's got to play with his feet. That's not goalkeeping. Goalkeeping's an art. You've got to use your hands and be quick off your line. Feed the ball. You know, if I took my time with a ball at my hands and my feet, not getting it to one of my players, I had to throw the ball almost immediately out to Jimmy, out to Big Yogi, Bobby Murder, anybody, Wally Wallace, Stevie. Get it there. Play play fast. At times we play too slow but that's ball going across the park and that's the only fault I've got. More direct. Like a wee bit more like what we did in early on Tuesday evening playing by d- direct football, pass the ball quick, getting the ball into their box and that's put their goalkeeper under pressure. But that's the only problem I don't like with goalkeepers they don't come off the line. Yeah, before and, John, we move off goalkeepers um you played with plenty of goalkeepers and you've seen every Celtic goalkeeper from you started going to watch football. If you could pick a player out of, of that of all them goalkeepers, even the modern players are back, who who would be one player you would pick out that's been a standout over the all the years for Celtic? Of the goalkeepers. Uh, I try, it'd be difficult. Because even going to Arthur, Porich and that, Arthur was a great Keeper, he was a stopper. Ronnie was the same. I can go back to Willie Miller, who was my idol as a kid. We John Boner. We could cope with this new modern game with the ball at your feet. And to judge a goalkeeper now to the goalkeepers that we had is it's difficult, you know, to say what you could do. I think this boy looks better with the ball at his feet. That's the only problem to pick out a goalkeeper now with modern to play in this modern game. I would think uh, the new boy looks looks pretty confident, but uh, yeah, I don't. They're in the class that we were. 
But I, I've often heard you speak about different goalkeepers and that, and he was called, I suppose, the second holy goalie. I remember doing a live show with you, and you kind of picked out or out, uh, from the modern keepers, yeah. probably the best yeah. you've seen. Yeah, yeah. I can cope with the ball at his feet now. You know, it's a few years. And it's funny, I heard an interview with David Marshall recently. Obviously, he was first choice when I had to come in on loan, and he lost mm-hmm. his place to Ardo. And he did say, you know, how talented Ardo was. He said he could do he could do it all. I suppose when you hear a keeper that's played with him, it does come home that you do know a little thing about goalkeepers. Yeah, well. <laughs> then again, it's the, the ball to your feet, you know, that's not a goalkeeper's duty. You know, is it? you'd be better just coming for a cross ball with your head. So you reckon now the modern game wouldn't have suited yourself and the keepers you played with? No, no, it would never have suited us. Oh, no. No, because, they, you know, we had to get the ball. Okay, we did mess about a lot, rolling the ball out back and forward and getting the ball back. That's when they changed it to the four, to the five seconds and nine seconds and get the ball moving, four steps and that. But you could throw the ball about as long as you have... You know, goalkeeper uses his hands. He doesn't use his feet. The only time you use your feet is a man one one to one and you, you stick your foot out. But you can use your hands, you know. Part of the modern game, John. I think the modern game is going to change, you know. I think it'll change. I think there's going to be some rules getting changed shortly because uh, it doesn't look right. Uh, to me, it doesn't make football. It wastes the game. It wastes the game, you know. I'd like to see referees take more. I mean, and I really mean it. More uh, braver with these divers, you know, like that that little one we, what do you call him, Neymar, you know, Murdy, Bertie, John Gregg, and a few others would hit him once and he'd be crying. He'd run off the field crying. He couldn't take it. That's, that's another thing that's wasted in the game now. You're not allowed to tackle. You know, the fouls now that for nothing. Yeah, and it's not that long ago. It's not that long ago, John, that the likes of Roy Keane was playing. And but yeah, he wouldn't be able to play in in the modern game now either because no. he would be pulled up at every tackle. Mm-hmm. That's true. Now, John, I, I want to take you back, okay? I want you to take the listeners back to your family history, the Irish connection, and your childhood growing up in Glasgow, and early memories of Celtic. Well, my first memory, I can go way back nineteen. 19- some Jimmy Delaney was playing and it always sticks out in my mind that's John Kennedy's grandfather and it always sticks out in my mind he scored the last minute goal against England and then they went to Man United everybody thought oh my god what's Celtic doing get ready Johnny Uh, Jimmy Delaney I started going to the games and uh, just going there we went in the tram car there was no bus to walk down to Campbell's Land and get the tram it was about a couple of miles and the tram car into Springfield Road, walk up into Celtic Park, the old Celtic Park, and uh, watching the hoops. And the atmosphere was great, you know. You could stand and enjoy yourself, go home, and you feel elated when the, the right result came. And that stuck to me. I remember my first trip to, my first trip to Hamden. Oh, it was very early. But the memory that really sticks out was the Coronation Cup series. I missed the St Mungo Cup series. Uh, but the Coronation Cup 53, the three games against Arsenal, Man U, uh, and Hibs. And that sticks out my memory. 
uh, going to Hamden, seeing as won a big cup. 51, he never got to the cup final when I think it was Big John McPhail scored. Then Sean scored a couple of games, you know, cup finals. To get tickets then was terrible. You know, it was uh, one ticket per person. And I remember all these victories. And you just felt proud of yourself. It was great. Even going to school, you felt good on the Monday, passing all the other schools. And uh, then 53, then 57, I was lucky enough to get a ticket to see the 7-1 game. And that was just the greatest thing that ever happened to me. You know, Celtic beating them 7-1. And of course, you know the story. Everybody said, oh, they were this and they were that. They shouldn't have beat us. But we beat them 7-1. And my father at that time, Arden, Daft Celtic, man as well, the same as my family, my brothers, even my mother. And uh, he was running a pub in Glasgow at the salt market and it was called the Empire Bar. Where the, where the Empire Bar is now. Yeah, same bar. And I used to go in there and give him my hand at the weekends to my portman, lift the, the glasses up and clean them and have them ready for the, the barman to work. And uh, that day, uh, he was walking in to open the bar. The bars were shut and it opened at five o'clock. My father was walking up about 20 minutes to five and this little boy run by him with a Celtic scarf on. My dad said, what's the mark? What's the score? And he went, 5-1. My dad says, uh, and the boy didn't have a scarf. The scarf was rolled up. He said, and about five minutes later, this other boy ran by and he says, what's the score? He says, 7-1. My father says, oh, for God's sake, you're joking. We never got beat. He says, no, we won 7-1. My father says, we won. Once he went up the pub before the, so he could catch all the supporters walking across the bridge. <laughs> he opened the bar early and the police weren't too happy with him because they did a police officer across the road. And he says, Paddy, what are you doing? He says, hey, you think I'm going to miss some trade here? No, you're not on. That was the 7-1 game. And then about a year and a bit after it, I joined Celtic in 1958. And to think that Bertie Peacock, Charlie Tully and them were still with Celtic and Lee Malkin. I went, gee, so watching them one year and then the next year he's playing, training with them. It's just one of the things. It's in your blood. You just get you know, really going. And I've never changed. I can't. Oh, I miss. You know, I'm missing the football now. I don't know what to do. I'm actually playing golf now. Oh, I said, oh, gee, so the Saturday afternoon playing golf. That's crazy. Come on. But uh, now we were brought up. My, my grandfather, who left Ireland when he was about 18, under very dubious circumstances, can we say. I know there's statues and placards out and Sligo out and gave about it. And he came over to Scotland. He married my gran, my gran, granny Murphy. And when he found out that Bally Moat, he says, it's just over the hill from Beaver. And there was a Sligo man and that was him. So my grandfather said there was nothing bad came out of Sligo. And we were grew up with the Irish connection, uh, cousins and all that. We'd go back and forward to Ireland on holiday. I loved going, to, going over to Strand Hill on holiday. Uh, once we went to a, to a foreign place, Bundoran, remember that? That's foreign to us. <laughs> I go was the place to go. And we were just brought up there. And that's why I love If I had a chance to be over there nearly every midweek, just over and back. It was over three weeks ago, two weeks ago, and over with my pal John, and we had about four games of golf up the north. 
we stayed in Derry with wee Seamus and uh, we did venture into the Donegal for a wee short period but we just played golf there and when I was over there I just stayed and I said you know some I would stay here if I, if it was there for Celtic I'd be too far away from paradise for you John oh yeah uh, it's a travelling back and forth but you know I've got to have that I'm like Tommy Stevenson if I don't see it I'm in trouble I need to go to a, a psychiatrist to get to calm down oh we know we all know John anyone that knows you knows that if you cut you, if you cut you would bleed green blood John yeah. You gave us an introduction there into your early memories of Celtic. Obviously, the 1957-7-1 game stands out. Uh, must have been great to be at that game at a time when Celtic were not the top dogs. Now, I did hear a story from you once. I don't know whether I read it in your book or I heard you chatting about at one of the shows. You bunked off school to, to go to see Celtic and... Can you just tell the listeners about the game and, and your run-in with the headmaster? I don't want to talk about that game. That was one of the most hurtful games at, at Hamden. Uh, Celtic were, in the Saturday, were winning 1-0 against Clyde. And it was in the final minute and the ball came in. Johnny Bonner went for the ball. Frank Meekin was at the, the front post. And so for some reason or other, the ball finished up in the net, one each. And they, everybody at that time, they used to blame the Hamden Swirl. Now, I often wonder what the Hamden Swirl was till, till I played there. And then on the Wednesday afternoon was a replay, an early kickoff. And I told one of the teachers, oh, I wasn't having school dinner the day. I'd, I was going to go home and get some dinner. He said, OK, as long as you're back. <laughs> so I went to the game and won nothing. Never forget it. I, saw, I actually saw it on YouTube last week. The ball going into the net, and I said, oh. And I was walking out Hamden. Now, there was 130-odd thousand, and I'm walking out right behind the Celtic goals, I'm walking up the stairs. Oh, terrible, terrible feeling. Disappointment. I didn't know what I was going to do. And I heard the voice shout, Fallon. And I looked, I said, who the hell shout? And I turned around, there the headmaster standing. And he said, I'll see you in the morning at my office, quarter past nine. So when I went in, the next morning, all my pals at school were saying, you're in trouble. I says, why? They said, oh, the rumour you were caught at Hamden. I says, ah, leave it. So I went into the headmaster's office and he looked at me and he says, well, what have you got to say? I says, it was rubbish. I'm disappointed. I'm heartbroken. And he says, oh, I know. I know how you feel. And he says, right, when you go out there, just say, I'll give you six of the, the belt double-handed, and he cracked his belt about six times, and I had to walk out shaking my hands. Oh, kid on, I'd been battered up and down the headmaster, and they're all saying, who did it go? I said, oh, bastard. He battered me. <laughs> <laughs> so, they all thought I'd got six of them. <laughs> this is the strongest belt. But he he was worse than me. But, you know, just shows you, imagine walking out of your hand and your headmaster is one of the first to see. I'm like, oh, no. I thought I was in real trouble. But with one teacher, Mr. Russell, we little, he used to play with Clyde as a, he never made it a week became That's how he became a school teacher. And he wasn't much of a school teacher either. But uh, he was a Clyde man. <laughs> and I gave him my view as well. <laughs> so I'll never forget that. Oh, it was one of the poorest days, sorest days I ever went to Hamden. 
John, we're going to talk about some highlights now, um, and we will get into uh, bits and pieces about your career. But I, I just want to get uh, your take on Lisbon. You were on the bench. What do you recall of, of the day before the game, during the game, and after the game? Not only from your players' point of view, but from being a fan. Well, that morning, it was very calm. Everybody was very calm. We had our breakfast, we had a late lunch. Everybody seemed calm. We were all talking to each other. Didn't much panic and you know worrying about what was happening. Just I think everybody had their own thoughts. And then when we left Esther all to go to the national stadium, and I don't know if you know about that story, we were driving towards the stadium, and everybody was waving to us. And somebody says to the driver, "Excuse me, we're going the wrong way." It about turn. He didn't know what the stadium. He thought we were going into Lisbon to play. He didn't know it was a national stadium, so we did make a detour and a way back. The supporters were all walking one way and we had to go down the other way to get to the stadium. It's comical. The police had to come and bring us round. So that was the only sort of mishap we had. We got down and have you ever been there and you look at it, the national stadium, as they called it, and that's the and you went down to the dressing rooms and you looked round about, it was like a public park. You had about six different dressing rooms all in the one block. And you had two teams, Celtic and Inter Milan, and you just walked through a sort of part up through the tunnel. And it wasn't you out, out onto the tunnel, onto the part. The boys all started singing and all that. Inter Milan thought they, oh, they were in, invincible, you know. Sure, like he'd at Swines, they were, you know, we had better news and all that shit. So he just kept looking at them. And we got onto the park, and big, as soon as we got up, out, over the, up the steps, onto the, behind the goal, Big Jock says, right, go and get that bench for me and just take it. I says, right. So I ran up, took the bench and Big Jock just sat, ampled up and who's walking up was a Herrera walking up and he demanded that he get my, the bench and I told him where to go, politely. Uh, <laughs> and uh, the policeman was behind me and I said to the policeman, Celtic bench, Celtic. He went, yes. And Herrera started, and they turned around and told him, get, they forced him away as well. So he wasn't happy, and Big Jock says, good, that's us one up. Everything was calm, the game. They never caused much bother, you know. See, the more you look at the game, what a boring game it was, you know, looking, because we just attacked, attacked, and they just cut an Atzio. They got a penalty kick, which was a bit dubious. I still think it was a bit dubious, but uh, he went down there easy. Then at half time, Big Jock wasn't very pleased with the referee. And he called him for everything. Oh, he's poking off his nut, calling him for. Well, I've got to watch what I'm saying now because politics come into it now. What he was calling the referee's nationality and who he supported and who he was when he was a boy and all that. He supported a certain man. <laughs> we were calming him down and got him in. In the second half, the referee sort of panicked and he gave us a wee bit more freedom. And he was a bit lenient. But I'll never forget, Tishinga was his name. And uh, we went one up, they won all. There was no panic. There was still no panic. They just kept, Big Jock just said, keep playing, boys. It'll come. And then 2-1, then the final whistle, and all hell broke out. And it was every one of the players, okay, the fans, I've told you before, Andrew, it was the biggest, biggest disappointment we ever had in my life, winning a trophy. I couldn't walk up all those stairs and come back down with a trophy because the fans were on the field and 
the moat didn't count. They called it a moat. Oh, my God. It was only four foot wide. You they could have jumped across it. And they had to rush and get down to the dressing rooms. Some players had no boots. Some had no jerseys. The only thing, you were lucky you'd left with your shorts on. People <laughs> <laughs> for anything. And they were grabbing strips and everything. And Big Tam was walking about. And the next thing he finished up in an Malansa strip. I don't know. So somebody must have stayed. It was lucky he even got that on. But that was the biggest disappointment. That night was a bigger disappointment. We went, Inter Milan refused to come. To, well, seemingly they refused to come to the reception for the both teams, the UEFA or FIFA or whatever. And they were told, no one just said, hey, get yourself here. By the time they turned up, it was getting a bit late. And we had brought, the wives had come over that morning. So we'd all planned to go and meet the wives after this meal and have a few hours because they were flying back at midnight. And the shambles was that the usual speeches, oh, they'll go on and on and on, presidents and secretaries and chairmen. And, and then medals was brought out of a, a wee black brown box. There was 12 medals in it. Billy handed the medals out. Ronnie right round came to me. says, right, there's your medal. I said, well, thanks. I looked at it, put it in my top pocket. Quite happy. Everyone's going, hunky-dory, but just wait to get away. Big Jock comes up and says, where's your medal? I says, why? He says, where is it? They forgot the referee's medal. I says, what? So he took my medal off me, and that was it. It wasn't until later on in years I found out that he took the medal off. He told me it was for the referee, wasn't it? But he took the medal off me and gave it to Bob Kelly. So uh, one of the one, uh, one of the presentation Christmas dinners, they handed us these medals, and I had got another one. Unknown to me, it was a replica. And uh, I didn't, as I said, I never found it for years after it that it was a replica, but I've got the original one now. Yeah, Peter Law will give you your medal back in uh, April of last year. Yeah. How did that was come a, about, John? There was, a, there was something that happened in Twitter. Uh, Michael Kelly, the famous Michael Kelly, <laughs> and he uh, made a statement there was only 11 lesbian lines, and somebody quizzed them. He said, you're wrong. There's 12 Lisbon lines. No, 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 you're wrong. He says, well, if you look at the team sheet, John Fowles' name's on it. He was the only substitute allowed goalkeeper. No, no, no. So I'd read it, and I went on to him and says, excuse me, Michael, your uncle got my medal, and that's when I didn't know anything about it. So I don't know what happened. It came out, and I didn't know anything about it, and then it came out that hey, I got a phone call from Peter, and I had to go in and meet Peter, and he asked me what happened, and I just told him the same as what I told you. He said, I don't believe that. He says, well, seemingly like the medals came from nowhere. And he says, it's yours, it's funny. So you'll be getting it. And unfortunately, I think that was when Big Billy died, wasn't it? There's something happened that weekend. I'd lost Esther in the January, December. Big Billy died. There was something happened that weekend, I'm not sure. And uh, there was a sort of a time, but I know I got my medal anyway. The grandkids were there, and they were they were proud because you know that you see them going to the games with me, and they were all chuffed to see their grandad getting a medal. So that was the, the meaning of my getting my medal late in life. John had uh, had Celtic won that famous one in two thousand and three in Seville. There was a name on the eleven players and and the substitutes that played that night. 
Well, John Hartson would have been missing that night because of injury, and John's yeah. goals got us to the final. So for me, uh-huh. if we had to win that night, John Fall- or John Hartson would be would be part of the Seville team. Yeah. Do you feel that history has let the Lions that didn't play in the final and played along the way has let them down a little? Well, I don't want to say much, Andrew, because when the 25th anniversary came out, there was a bit of confusion. Uh, well, bitterness, I would say. I'd received two phone calls from two of the players who'd actually played. One had played in the semi-final, never played in the final. And with another player who was a top scorer, had they played, and he'd noticed it, that somebody brought, and he got on the phone to me, and he's shouting and bawling, saying, wait a minute, you were the 12th man, you were part of this squad, why you not being recognised? I says, well, just the same as you, Joe and John. I says, we, you weren't recognised. I said, but you've got your medals as well. You know, Celtic gave us 16 medals, in fairness to them. We don't know if they're real or not. <laughs> but uh, as I said, the medals came out and uh, they were going to have this function and that function. And I was forced to phone a certain gentleman saying, look, I couldn't give a damn. If that's the way they want it, let them do it. I couldn't care. Leave them to their own business. And he says, no, no way. So he called a meeting. And then they called the, com- the committee and said, what are you doing? There were 16 players. There were only 15 players. I was the only one. I was stripped for every game. I was the only player that never played one game. You can remember Charlie Gallagher played a few games. Big Yogi played a few games. Wally O'Neill played a few games. Joe McBride played a few games. So I was the only one. But I'd stripped. And that was why they were saying to me, you're part of that squad. So it all came out. They decided 16. And that was it. But uh, you know what? It hurts a wee bit. But to me, I, I, I couldn't give a toss. If that's, if that's what they wanted, that's what they were getting. You know, I thought they were a bit... But there was a... Who made it worse was the Daily Record and STV, uh, Alec Cameron, decided to do a TV programme. And it was down at Seamill Hydro. And he just took the 11 down. And it's on tape. They were all sitting there. Bobby Murdoch, Jim Craig, Ronnie, turned around and says, listen, we're all sitting here. He says, we're 16 of us. Bobby said, aye. John found the strip for every game. He was a lesbian lying. And I know they were, you know, and then when it came out, and everything was split up. I know there's still people talk. I know they do, but to me, they can talk with the one. I don't care what they think. I'm proud of being a Celtic player, but if that's what they wanted, they agreed, you know, well, to hell with them. John, thanks for sharing that with us. You used to live a Celtic back in 1958. You know, your family must have been so proud, a big Celtic family, the Irish connection. Have you any recollections of that day? Yes. I played on the Saturday in a trial match and had the honour of actually playing with Charlie Tully that day because the old reserves, what they were talking about the other night there on TV, that the old reserves, if they were injured and were near fitness, they played in the reserves to see how fit they were. And we played at Motherwell. And after the game, Charlie wrote something in the evening, the evening citizen or something. He had an article every week and he says, saw a young goalkeeper today, John Fallon. And he looks apart. I remember that. And I went into training on the Tuesday because it was part of the Kelly Babes training facilities. Billy had just signed. I think Billy was first to sign for the squad. And uh, I was asked with Mr McGrory, to come into the office 
uh, Celtic would like to sign me. And I was just, I was delighted. I says, yeah, okay, no problem. Never asked for what I was wanting. I says, yes, I've signed. And I signed and they'd made a moment shop of the forum. So on the Thursday night, I had to sign it again. But I never asked what I was getting. And it wasn't until he says to me, John, you never asked what you were getting. I says, you never told me. And uh, they said that I would be getting about £7 or £8 playing in the reserves. If we went into the first team, I'd get £12. And your bonus was £3 for a win in the first team, 50 pence, £1.50 for a draw. And the reserves was half that again, you know. So I signed and I came home and I looked at my mother and my father. My father, as usual, just reading his paper. And I said, well, how'd it go? He said, I just signed for them. And he looked at me and says, what? I was not there. You wouldn't even ask. I said, no, just ask me if I wanted to sign. I says, aye. I signed. <laughs> because the Fall House United boys had been there, so I didn't know what was going on when they seen them sitting there at the committee. And they hummed and hawed a wee bit for money. But they got what they, they asked for. And uh, I just signed and that was it. Uh, the family were going off that nut. Oh, God's sake, you never told us. You just said you're playing a game and that was it. So it came as a surprise to them. I just walked in the house and said, I've just signed for Celtic. <laughs> John, what was the average wage for the average walking man then? Oh, God. Andrew, I think our mechanics, I was an apprentice, and we were getting about maybe one seventy one pound, maybe seven shillings and sixpence or something, and a mechanic would be maybe giving it three pounds. So that was big money. That was great money. You know, so my mother just decided that money goes into the bank. You don't get a penny of it. I'll give you X amount for pocket money. And that was it. She just took the money off me into the bank. And uh, for there on, it was just Celtic. That that was me. I never told them. That I, I did lose a few friends because they, I never told them they were signing for Celtic. And some of the boys that went to school with me, when I started training with Celtic, I sort of switched off with them because I'd seen too many boys. And even for this area, Blantyre, there's some, oh, they all talk, they call me lucky. Oh, you're lucky you got signing for Celtic. I said, no, I'm not. I said, you were an idiot. Because they thought they could, oh, be a jack lad, run about with their pals, in and out the pubs. And I just switched right off. And I dedicated myself to Celtic to be a Celtic player. And I think it's worked out great for me compared with them, you know. And, uh, you know, there's some, in later life, they began to be proud. Oh, I went to school with you. But when I left myself, we went to Celtic at the start, it was different. Well, he's a snob. He doesn't want to talk to us. He doesn't want to go out with us. Because I knew they were going out drinking, maybe going to dancing and all that. But I said, no, no, that's switch off. To tell you the truth, Andra, I've got to say it. We, Essie, or Essie, saved me. Because when I met Essie, that was my life changed again. And between Celtic and Essie, that was it. Now, John, you mentioned Essie, and we will, we will chat about Essie um, later. Just forced. So you were at Celtic for 14 years. Yes. Now, before we look back on some of the highlights of that career, John, when you leave Celtic, as a, you know, you're a fan going in, you're a fan coming out, and you're still a fan. You attend home and away games. I've had the pleasure of sharing the car with you. You've looked after me. You've picked me up at airports. You've dropped me back. You've picked me up at train stations. You've fed me. So I know what your passion is for Celtic and how 
how much of a gentleman you are to other fans. You've always time for fans. You've always time for charity events. But when you're leaving Celtic after 14 years of, as a player, you know, you don't know what's ahead of you with supporters, clubs and folly in Celtic and, and the life you're going to have. How hard was it? Terrible. Uh, I did want to leave. I still say it. I'd, we got back into the team for a couple of games and I remember playing against Aberdeen, got beat 1-0 and Joe Harper and I'd fought back. I, I, was, I think it was about a year out of the game with injury. My back, the septic joints and all that. And I fought my way back into the team and we got beat 1-0 and uh, there was a photo on the back page of the Daily Record I Joe Joe with the throat because he'd kicked me in the ground with Joe Harper and I was ready to punch him and uh, something happened, big jock seen him, who the hell do you think you are doing that to him? And I turned him and said, maybe if one of your defenders had done it we wouldn't have got beat. So that was happening. And the next thing I knew a couple of about a week or so later, February or some, Bobby Murdoch, where have you been? I says, I went away after training. He says, he's looking for you. I says, so? I says, he'll see me tomorrow. So I went home, sitting in the house, and Essie says, here's, here's, here's Joe Steen coming here. What's he wanting? I went, I don't know. She says, what did you do? What have you done to him? What did you say to him? I said, nothing. And he came in, he says, right, that's you. You're finished. I says, why? I'm not. You're going to Motherwell? I said, no, no. And we had an argument. And he told me that I would never kick another ball for Celtic. The fans didn't want me. He didn't want me. And uh, if I didn't go, I'd be finished. Yes, he just turned around and says, Mr. Seen, see that door? Get out of it. Now, never set foot here again. I never even talked to you again. Never did. I never did that. Myself. I went to Motherwell for two months or three months, and it was the worst experience I ever had I had no ambition to play football. If I maybe I went to England, if it gave me a chance, you know, a right transfer, it just kicked me out the door. And it probably would have been different if it treated it different. But that was me. And I felt bitter. And then I went up to, remember then, to Milan game, the penalty kick over the bar. That was on the Wednesday night. And Motherwell was playing Celtic on the Saturday. And uh, I went up to yeah, in the front door. Big Yogi was talking to Big Yogi. And somebody spoke to me. And at that time, we used to could walk in, ex-players, and walk straight in the front door. And Big Yogi walked in, and I spoke to somebody and walked in, and I was told, no, you've not, you, you're not getting in. I said, what do you mean? He said, you're not getting in. I went, he said that. He says, oh, the big man. I said, oh, did he? He said, okay then. You know what you tell him. Uh, I don't want to say it, but a few words, and I walked away. And by chance, I got a ticket off a, a boy standing next to me and went in to watch the game. So on the Saturday, we played against Celtic at Parkhead. Mother made me the captain, and he never even looked at me. I never even looked at him. And I think they beat, beat us 5-2 or 5-3. And some way they got two penalty kicks. I don't know what for. I, I think I pulled down Wee Louie for nothing, and I tripped to Kenny for nothing. Uh, and that was it. Uh, I never spoke to him. One day at Carplo, it was for Hal Stewart's testimonial. And Celtic's Lisbon squad were playing, and I was in goals. And it was nothing each, and they'd got a penalty kick for some reason, and I saved it. So it went to penalty kicks, and I saved the five penalties, and we won. And Benny Rooney and Michael Jackson were the manager and assistant manager at Morton. And in this wee small room, not even bigger than my wee kitchen, and we're all in there talking to Benny and Michael. And I was last, I was talking to somebody from Greenock, and I was last to go up 
And as I walked by the door, I seen some of the boys standing. And I walked in to say hello, and Big Jock was there. And I walked in, and I about turned, and I said, Cheerio, Benny, I'll see you later, son. And I walked out, and that was the last I was seen him. Yeah, admired him <laughs> as a manager, but you had your difficulties with him as a person. Yeah, yeah. His man management at times is shocking. You know, he was a great manager, my coaching and all that, but, you know, at times he just didn't know how to treat people. And Sean told him that as well on a few occasions, but that was it. And I just couldn't. It was the worst experience. It, it never left me for years, you know. I never even near Celtic Park for years. I was that bitter. Uh, and I just decided, and they said to me, why are you not going? I says, I'm not going. He's there. And when he left, I went. Back. Once again, folks, the tape just ran and ran, and we will have part two of the interview with John on Tuesday's show. We just couldn't let this opportunity go to record John's memories. If you are enjoying the podcast and you would like to support us, there's four ways you can do so by visiting CelticFanzine.com. You can donate for the price of a pint. Subscribe to the digital or print edition of More Than 90 Minutes, Substart at $5.99. You can join our new membership, which starts at $7.99. Or you can buy some of our merchandise, which starts at 5 quid. We promise no unwanted Google adverts on our website or articles, and no unwanted advert interruptions on our podcast. We're keeping it real and we're keeping it independent. Your support will help us to continue to produce quality independent fan journalism, podcasts, video content and free live Celtic fan events when we finally get back to doing some. If you are not in a position to financially support us at this time, don't worry. We will still deliver the same quality content to all fans for free. As always, thank you for listening and for your continued support and special thanks to our producer Ronan McQuillan. The podcast is available on all platforms. Hit the subscribe button and you will never miss an episode. Alternatively, you can visit CelticFanzine.com forward slash podcasts forward slash where you will find all the podcasts we have recorded. Please follow More Than 90 Minutes on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. If your business or CSC would like to sponsor the podcast, please email us at info at CelticFanzine.com or you can contact us through the website or message us on social media. Keep the comments coming in and let us know what guests you would like us to have on the show And if you have a story to tell, we'd love to hear it. The next podcast, episode 23, will be out on Tuesday when we will continue our conversation with John Fallon. Enjoy the game on Saturday evening and when the final whistle is blown, let's hope the boys are leaving Dundee and heading back for Glasgow with three points. Enjoy the weekend, whatever you're up to, and make sure you stay safe. I'll be back spinning a few tunes for the first time since last March and I have to say I'm looking forward to dusting down the decks Keep the faith and stay safe. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello 
Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.